Good morning. It's good to be seen this morning. I wish I could see you, and next week you will have the opportunity to come here to the place of worship, and I'll be giving more complete information about that after the Song of Commitment to end our service today. We want to be in prayer for one of our families who has lost a patriarch, a husband, a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and yes, a great-great-grandfather. I'm speaking of Simon Ortega. He's succeeded by his wife, Dorothy, who is in good health and surrounded by her children. We want to pray that the Holy Spirit will comfort her and all her offspring. So be in prayer, please. One of our members has been diagnosed with COVID-19. It's pretty amazing, only one person throughout all this pandemic that I'm aware of, at least, has developed the illness, but he is already on the upswing in his health. We're grateful for that. Please pray for the three members in his family that they will not come down with the illness. Let's pause and pray for a moment. Lord, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. We know, Jesus, your name is the name above every name, that at the very mention of your name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Jesus, would you override our own self-consciousness as presenters as well as listeners Please help us to have a laser-like focus upon you and hear from you. Teach us, Lord. Do more than that. Motivate us to apply what we hear. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Please take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at the first eight verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This morning I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible and give you opportunity to find your place there in whatever version you have with you. And we're going to read this passage and then seek guidance from the Spirit of God to teach it and understand it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body 
and to be at home with the Lord. After receiving an Academy Award, the very accomplished screenwriter, producer, director, and actor, Woody Allen was asked a question by one of the pundits in the interview room. The reporter asked him, Mr. Allen, are you trying to attain, achieve immortality through your work? Allen paused a moment before giving his answer, and then he quipped, No, I'm trying to obtain or achieve immortality by not dying. He obviously thinks a lot about death. If you know his work, death is a recurring theme in his work. Like all of us, no matter how famous we may be, how much money we have made, no matter how great a reputation we have, we all are going to die. In spite of the quantum leaps we have made in technology, one thing remains constant. We must die. Joseph Bailey, in a book entitled The Last Thing We Ever Talk About, the subject, by the way, is death, makes these comments. He said, we may postpone death. We may even be able to tamp down the violence of death. But death is still there waiting for us. The Nobel Prize winner and the prostitute, he goes on to write, the dairy farmer and the sales executive, the mother, the infant, the teen, the old man, they all find that the hearse is waiting for them, standing by. He goes on to say, even the surgeon who is transplanting a heart as well as the hopeful hopeful recipient. And in addition to that, the funeral director, the mortician, as well as the corpse he manipulates, they all wait for death. Death spares no one. What about us? Let's get very personal. We who know Jesus Christ, what does the Bible teach us in this passage, which we just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, about the matter of death? The good news for us who know Jesus is that the Scripture says we need not despair of death. We need not dread death. Did you catch the spirit of Paul, as he's writing these words, there's a certain excitement that seems to leap off the page when you read these words of the Apostle Paul. Our departure need not disturb us when it comes to leaving this world. Once again, Paul makes this statement in another of his letters, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, the time of my departure has come. And by the way, the word translated departure was used outside the New Testament to describe the taking down of a tent by an army of soldiers and moving on. So Paul knew that his departure was not the end of his life, 
nor was his departure the gateway into living in eternal death. Rather, his departure was a departure that would put him in the presence of the Lord, which he so eagerly looked forward to. In the book of Philippians, Paul makes this statement. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far than staying here. And make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul loved being here for the express purpose of ministering to people like the Philippians and like the Corinthians. And so this world is not to be looked at through dark glasses because we see this world as Christ sees it. He loves it. And as Paul also said in that same section in Philippians chapter 1, he says, for to me... To live is Christ, but to die is gain. So, how is it that we need not dread departing this life? Why? Well, look at verse 4 again, and it yields this very obvious answer to the question. This tent that we dwell in is a burden. Look at verse 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent. Let me pause just a moment. This tent is described in verse 2 as an earthly tent. Now, how many of you have ever gone camping and slept in a tent? Probably the large majority of us have done that. Camping out can be a lot of fun, can't it? But at some point, most people grow tired of the inconveniences of camping life. And they get weary of the heat in the summertime as the sun beats down on the tent, or if they're in a tent during the wintertime, the cold penetrates them, and they long for the warmth of home or the air conditioning of home. So this earthly tent that he speaks of is something which is a burden, And it causes us to groan. In our audience, there are people who are medical doctors or nurses, people who do physical therapy work with people. And they make a living working on groaning tents. Have you ever thought about that? Did any of you groan as you tried to get yourself out of bed today and began to dress yourself? Some of the people in the room are so young they never have thought about groaning when they get up in the morning. They just leap out of bed excited to go forward during the day. But as time progresses, we find that our bodies, the earthly tents that we indwell, really cause us to groan. They become a burden to us. That same set of doctors includes people who are committed to orthopedic surgery, And such people work hard to keep the tent pegs from pulling loose. And they're dermatologists who may be listening. And dermatologists, some of you have been to a dermatologist, they work hard to make the canvas continue to look good. And then general practitioners, they really work on the tent to stitch it up where there are tears, to patch it up. We have this tent this earthly tent in which we live. And it's a tent. And we groan in it. As we read from Romans chapter 8, we read something very 
unusual about the creation. The creation groans. And for why? Why? What purpose does it groan? It groans for the revealing of the sons of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, the earth, the universe, fell with them. And it bears the marks of the fall. We know the Bible teaches us that when Jesus Christ comes again, He's going to create, after He has destroyed the existing order, He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Meanwhile, the earth is longing. The word that Paul uses for waiting expectantly is a word which was used in Paul's day to describe someone who wanted to see something and was craning his or her neck to see it, trying to look over the crowd so that person could see what was interesting to that person or appealing to his or her attention. But then it says about us, we, we who know Christ, we too are eagerly awaiting that moment when we have our bodies transformed, the Bible says in Romans 8:23. Why? Because this body of ours groans due to its limitations and its disabilities. Let's look at a second answer to the question. Why do Christ's followers need not dread departing this life? And the second answer is, our mortality will be swallowed up by life. What does mortality mean? It suggests that we are not immortal. We're not going to live forever. We know that. And what the Scripture says in this passage, if you'll look back again at it, Let's begin with verse 4 to get the flow of thought. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What's that all about? Please understand what that means is that the moment that you and I exit this life, in that instant, we will be swallowed up. By life, in the sense that we will not be naked, Paul indicates he didn't want to be naked, he wanted to be clothed. And how are we clothed? We're clothed with immortality. We are swallowed up by the very life of Christ. And interesting, this is awesome to think about. We were created for this purpose that is, for immortality, life. To swallow us up. Look at verse 5. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. What is the purpose of God? Eternal life for us. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Bible talks a lot about eternal life. In 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says this is, this is God's will for us, that we be people who embrace Christ. And the result is that because we have the Son, we have eternal life. We are people who are created. God's intention for us is that we have this life. I'll never forget 
working with a young man. It's been over 40 years ago, perhaps now. He had come to Christ. He was a senior in high school. His name, Eddie Marshall. And I was going through a booklet that I have used ever since, and even before that. It's called Growing in Christ. We were looking at the first lesson entitled Assurance of Eternal Life, how you can be sure of your salvation. And as he was answering his questions, he was so serious, and he was a sharp young man. And he kept talking about eternal life, but he was talking about internal life is what he was really saying. He kept saying, internal life, internal life. And I wanted to correct him so badly. I wanted to say, Eddie, it's not internal life, it's eternal life. And then I was stopped in my spirit, I believe, by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit whispered to my heart, he said, he's right. Eternal life is internal life. There is no life that's inside a person that gives life to that person except eternal life. It's that which comes to us. We were made for this. This is God's purpose for our lives. To prove that God made us for life eternal. God has given us something. It's more than something. It's a person. Look at verse 5, the second part. Gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. I don't know what your translation says. The word pledge is used by the New American Standard Version. The best way to understand what that word means to us and what it meant to those to whom it was first written is to see the way in which this word was used outside the New Testament contemporary to the New Testament. For instance... It was used to describe a down payment which a homeowner gave to a mouse catcher of eight drachma. That would be the equivalent of eight days' worth of work as a down payment which would be completed later once all the mice had been run out or caught by this mouse catcher. This word was also used to describe a down payment which was made to a dancing troupe which was going to perform at some festivity in that era of history in Greek thought. Fast forward to today. That word really continues to have its basic meaning today. For today, if you were to go to Greece and you were to see a woman with an engagement ring on, what you would learn if you could communicate with her that that ring was the pledge. This word is actually a word which sounds like this in the original language, Arabon, a down payment, a promise ring, if you will, that the man who gave it to her was going to make good on his promise. There's an obvious application to us as the church here. You probably already thought about it. The church is engaged to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we have eternal life. And even though we do not experience all the aspects of it to its fullest yet, 
He lives in us. The Holy Spirit does. And the church is engaged to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back for His bride. And He's going to make good on the promise of eternal life in its broadest experience. And He's going to take His bride, and perhaps you know in the Jewish custom that the groom would come with his best man and an entourage to the home of the woman to whom he was engaged or betrothed, and then he would take her with him and the group, and they would go back to the place of the wedding itself and the feast which followed. This is what we have to look forward to, to be free from the impending doom of death in this life. We don't have to worry about it in this life. Praise God for that. But to be free from all the vestiges of death and the things which death has caused all around us. There's a third answer to the question, why Christ's followers do not need to dread departing this life. The first answer was, this earthly tent is a burden, isn't it? It's something which weighs us down, doesn't it? Also, our mortality will be swallowed up by life. There's no way that death can touch us in any form or fashion because we're in Christ. And we're going to go to our full reward in heaven. Here's the third answer to the question why we who know Jesus do not need to dread death. Because to be Away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Can you think of anything better than to be with Jesus? To have His constant companionship unhindered by your own limitations, being a person who's wearing this earthly tent, unhindered by any sin that you might commit, in this interim period between the time that we have been set free from condemnation for our sin, but also set free from sin itself. We don't have to sin anymore. But not even sin anymore. Can you imagine what that will be like? What this text teaches us in verse 8. Look at it. We are of good courage. Paul was courageous. He didn't lose heart. He didn't lose heart. Because he put his trust fully in the Lord. And prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. To be with Christ is to inhabit a house not made by human hands. Let's go back up to verse 1. For we know... Now, I should pause right here. Pay careful attention. There's great certainty in the mind and heart of Paul. He knew, as did his team of disciples, as they were bringing the gospel all over the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. What is that house 
in heaven. It's a different kind of clothing, isn't it? A clothing that will never wear out. A piece of clothing that's pristine and is perfect. Would you let me make a stab at answering my own question? I believe we give wise notice to what Paul writes in Romans where he talks about how we're to put off the flesh, the deeds of the flesh. And we're to, what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to dress ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we receive Christ, He comes to indwell us. When we are translated from this life to the next, no longer having this earthly tent in which we groan and we long to be united fully with Christ, what I believe happens is Christ comes and in some mysterious way. He does not negate our individuality. He does not in any way negate our personalities. But we have Him put on permanently in that sense. He shines through us and people will see Him in us as well. That's awesome to think about. One thing I want to make notice of here, too, in verse 1, after he says, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. Now, he's speaking about from his current position. He's in Christ. He uses that phrase over and over again. And we who know Jesus, like Paul, we're in Christ. But Paul was still on earth. We're still here on earth, aren't we? But we have already a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. It's our possession. This is what God tells us. Now, I want to stop here just a moment and address a question that is probably in some of your minds. Would you please look at verse 6 and then we'll skip 7 and go to verse 8. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. There are all kinds of ideas that circulate about what happens to people after they die. You've heard them. You've heard more than I'm going to suggest today. But let me talk about three broad categories of ideas about how to explain what happens after we die. Oftentimes I hear people say, carte blanche, just blanket statement, when people die, he's gone to a better place. Well, not everybody's going to a better place when they die. The Bible is very clear. If people do not know Jesus Christ, Paul speaks of it in the book of 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. He says they will experience eternal destruction. Can you imagine? Living in a place called hell, where the worm never dies, and the flame never goes out, And somehow or another, even though it's dark and it's hot, it is a place where there is nothing but sin 
the total opposite of heaven. Can you imagine a place like that? And it goes on and on and on forever. There are those who would say, and these people are religious people, they would say that once you die, there is a transition time that is temporary before you go to heaven. It's a time and a place where people can pray for their loved ones who are in that place of transition in hopes of praying them out of that place. We know it is purgatory. Here's another suggestion. This suggestion would be repeated reincarnations. This has to do with religion rooted in Hinduism. Actually, it's Eastern religion. And it says that we are recycled repeatedly and we could actually be recycled eternally. Always going up or back or up and back and have that kind of existence depending on how we lived in each incarnation. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, does it? Nothing at all about that. And it's a rather ingenious way to deal with things. But we can tell by looking at the land where this is most prominent. If you've seen anything about India or you've been there, I've been there one time, and it was just appalling to me in my spirit and soul to see how people were graded based upon their birth. And there was no way they could get up out of whatever caste they were in if it was lower than the highest caste, the caste of Brahman, the head caste. And the vast majority of the people are in this lower class, the lowest class, the foot class, and they have no hope in this world. And the reason being is that that is their karma. Something they did in the previous life demanded that they pay for it in that life. And to help them get out would be to violate the religion of Hinduism, but also it would not really be ultimately kind to that person. Now, here's another broad category. And this category is that death is the ultimate conclusion of life. Once you die, that's it. I think about people who have great wealth. They seem to live longer. Have you noticed that? Not always, but they tend to live longer. Kirk Douglas, who was a star in Hollywood for many years, he just died recently. I don't remember exactly how old Mr. Douglas was, but he was over 100. Still had his faculties about him. He passed away earlier this year. He lived a long time. And people who have a lot of money tend to have the means whereby they can live longer. But the reality is they are going to die, aren't they? Without exception, those people are going to die. If people don't know the Lord, don't have any hope, they don't even have the viewpoint of purgatory or the viewpoint of repeated reincarnations, hoping that finally you can transmigrate the soul all the way back to Brahman and be reunited with the Godhead? Well, people have nothing except their own lives. And they look at their life, and at the end, there's nothing. 
It's so sad, isn't it, to think about this? When the Lord would have those who have that viewpoint to have eternal life, such a viewpoint leads to one of two typical kinds of lifestyles. One is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. I think if I were that mindset, that's the one I'd want to adopt, just to have a good time. Nothing wrong with having fun. Don't mishear me. But there is much more to life than just having a party. And others are so sad. They're in depression all the time. The Lord wants us to be full of His joy. And that's what He brings to us when we come to know Christ. In the book of Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, the Bible says, Every man's destiny is death. Death is every person's destiny. That's what the Scripture says. And we don't even need the Scripture to know that, right? How many people do you know personally who died and have come back to life and you know they're going to live forever? Well, there's only one person who survived death. He died. He came back to life. Of course, Jesus Christ. He is the life. He is the one who swallows us up with immortality, as it were. We're clothed with Him. Not to lose our identity. Please don't mishear what I'm saying, our individuality. But that is our destiny if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, the Bible talks to us about sin's result. Sin came into the world. Every man has sinned, the Bible says, without exception, beginning with Adam, according to Romans 5.12. Every human being has sinned. We don't even have to be taught to do it. It comes naturally to us because we have the sinful nature. But the wages of sin is what? Death. It's an inevitability. The wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews 9, the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. Purgatory believers, listen carefully. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. We only get one chance in this life. Opportunity is a better word to respond to the love of God through Jesus Christ and ask Him to give us forgiveness of our sin and eternal life. And then in the book of Luke, the 16th chapter, you know the parable probably, some of you do at least, about this man who was a man who was a beggar, and he was eaten up with sores. He couldn't get anything. He had to beg for everything. He died. He found his way into heaven. The man who was so rich who came right by him every day because this beggar stayed right outside his gate where his compound was. He didn't even give him the time of day. And there's conversation between Hades, where this wealthy man was, and Father Abraham, Abraham the great patriarch, and he's asking for help. But there is no help because once you die, it's over. This new eternal dwelling is what would be described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll turn there and take a look. You look at three verses, beginning with verse 40, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Paul writes, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. Now, he's talking about what he talks about in a little different way in 2 Corinthians 5, where he talks about the tent that's earthly and then this imperishable body. He goes on to say, verse 41, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in Glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It's a spiritual body. He goes on to say, look at it in verse 44. It is sown a natural body. When the body's placed in the grave, it's the natural body and it decays. It is raised a spiritual body. It is, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That's the body we're going to have. It's going to be like Christ. When we see Him, the Bible says, we're going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. People have varying views about what happens between the moment we die physically and we enter into the presence of the Lord. Some people say the soul sleeps. You just think you've been asleep. Just think you see Jesus immediately, but really you haven't because your soul is sleeping. I don't think there's any verification of that. In this passage, in 2 Corinthians especially, the idea is the moment, the instant that we take off this old earth suit and we end up in the presence of God, just like that. Also, there are those who would say there are disembodied spirits. That's what we are. But that's not possible either. If you looked back, and we won't bother to read it again at verses 2 and 3, that negates that possibility, 2 and 3 of chapter 5. And then there are those who say there are intermediate bodies. There's absolutely nothing that could warrant such a suggestion. When we die, instantly, we're with the Lord. And we're set free from this body of death as it's described I'm going to close with stating some facts that are in Scripture, some of which we've already dealt with, probably all of them, and then give you a recommendation knowing that fact. Fact number one, birth initiates life. No-brainer, right? The recommendation for you who are listening is be sure that you've been born a second time. You say, what? Be sure you've been born again. And the idea of being born again is the idea born from above. Given this life that is eternal from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, and He has come to dwell in your life. Nicodemus, the man that Jesus dealt with in The book of John, chapter 3, he was called by Jesus, the teacher of Israel. This was a learned man, a highly regarded man. He was a man who had great authority. He came to Jesus by night. And he was inquiring of Jesus about his teaching. And then Jesus said to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. How is one born again? We're born again by the living and abiding Word of God, the Bible says in First Peter. We're born again when 
we receive Christ. But as many as received Christ, to them He gave the authority to become a child of God, even to those who believe in His name. We have to receive Jesus into our lives. Christ is speaking to someone in the audience this morning. And He's saying, you need me if you hope to overcome death. There is no way for you to cheat death. You need me not just for fire insurance. You need me to live the rest of this life in the way you were intended to live it for the glory of God and enjoy my presence and enjoy all the things which come with knowing me and being in a right relationship with God. So be sure you're born again. The second fact, death terminates life. You're saying, you're really smart, Mike. Very observant. Death terminates life. It does, doesn't it? So here's the recommendation. Be sure you're ready to die. Because you surely are going to die. All of us dies. Each one of us dies. And so how do you get ready? Well, I've already talked about it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved from eternal destruction. And here's the final fact and companion suggestion. Opportunities are limited in life. The Bible says in this same book of 2 Corinthians, if you have your Bible open, just turn over there, will you? Let's look at chapter 6. Verse 2, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time, because now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of your salvation. The Lord has spoken truth to us today about the death that awaits all human beings, but also the great hope that is part of knowing Jesus Christ. I remember reading a story. It's a fictitious story, but it could be true. It fits the personality of the devil. The devil was schooling some of his demons in terms of how they are to deal with people who don't know Christ yet. And he said to this group of demons, he said, look, impress it upon the people whom you have oversight of, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, impress upon them that they can always procrastinate making such a decision. Put it off. We know from this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that the time, the only time, that God has on His clock is now. Now is the day of your salvation. Cry out to the Lord and trust Him. In John five twenty four, Jesus makes this statement. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me, that would be God the Father, has eternal life. Today you could be transitioned from death to life if you humble yourself under God and listen to the outcome. Not only do you have eternal life right now and from now on throughout eternity, but also 
you will not come under condemnation. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, you have passed from death to life. You've been swallowed up with life right now. And that's for you. Would you bow your head? Would you say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want to be your follower. I want to let you control me in every way possible. I need forgiveness for my sins, Lord. They're against you. I'm so sorry, Lord. Thank you for taking all my punishment upon yourself on the cross. And I ask you to come into my life and be true to your word. Give me eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.